All right. Well, yeah, like I mentioned, um, as you guys can tell, um, I am uh, not preaching in my usual spot. Um, I am actually in Texas uh, visiting Megan's family. And uh, Texas is two hours ahead of California. So I'm like dying. Just kidding. Not really. Um, but before we get started, um, if you're taking a look at your sermon notes, um, you'll notice that we will be studying um, a passage in Luke tonight. Um, don't worry, we are still on track to finish 1 Corinthians uh, by April, uh, the end of April. And so uh, very exciting. But uh, the reason why we are in some random passage in Luke tonight is because I wanted us to be preparing for what is known as um, Holy Week. Um, this this upcoming week, uh, whether you are aware of it or not, uh, will mark the days leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, and as many of you know, uh, Good Friday and Easter don't happen out of a vacuum. Uh, there were things that Jesus had done throughout the week that led to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, so if you actually watch our Truth for Trouble Times um, this upcoming week, we'll actually be finally ending our truth for, uh, our, our year of Truth for Trouble Times um, by doing daily reflections on each day in Holy Week. Um, I'll be doing one on uh, Monday, Thursday, but I'll save the introduction for whoever starts it next week. Uh, but Palm Sunday, um, which is our passage that is traditionally uh, uh, preached in, in Luke or uh, Matthew or Mark, um, it's also called Passion Sunday. Um, it marks the first day of Holy Week. And the reason why it's called Palm Sunday is because it refers to the Sunday that Jesus finally makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, um, the city of his appointed destiny. Um, and the reason why it's called Palm is because uh, of the palm branches uh, that the crowds had used to greet Jesus as he was entering Jerusalem. Uh, Luke doesn't actually record that, but uh, Matthew and Mark do. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. Um, they refer to branches, but it's really John who refers to it as palm branches. Um, now, you might be wondering why we're talking about Palm Sunday on Friday uh, rather than on Sunday. Uh, but in case you haven't noticed, uh, we don't meet on Sundays for youth group, and we won't be talking about um, this passage on Sunday, uh, Pastor David will be speaking on something differently. Um, but there are two reasons why I wanted us to stop and reflect on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as the introduction to, to Holy Week. The first is that I think modern Christians like ourselves uh, need to be familiar with how the church celebrates the week of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is not virtuous for Christians today to be unaware of their Christian heritage. Um, the second is that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is meant to shake up our understanding of who we think Jesus is. In fact, I think it's even providential as a conclusion to our study of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in light of who Jesus is as the resurrected Lord, the question that remains that I think all of us have to ask and answer is how will we respond to him? In fact, because Jesus is properly Lord over the entire cosmos, his Lordship demands a response. Jesus' resurrection does not create apathetic followers. Either his resurrection will alienate people or draw people to himself. Uh, you cannot be apathetic toward him. Uh, Jesus demands a response from every single one of us. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. It's kind of a long introduction. Um, but uh, Luke, chapter 20, uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. <clears throat> um, and as you guys turn there, uh, we are right in the middle of um, more than the middle of Luke chapter 19. We're again uh, approaching um, Holy Week. And so uh, this is what Luke records um, in chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. This is what he says, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet or Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, on the colt, they... They sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on, way, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, 
saying, would that you even, you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Let's pray together real quickly before we get started. Father, we need your help. Even as we look at this text, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see what you desire for us to see, hearts to believe and to trust what you desire for us to trust and to believe in. And that is Jesus, the King. And so, Father, help us now. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Who is Jesus? Now, this question uh, seems like it has a fairly harmless and obvious answer, but I want you guys to think about it for a second. Who is Jesus? Because the more that we think about it, the question, it's almost as if the question changes, doesn't it? If I asked all of you who you think Jesus is, I guarantee you that none of us will have the same answer. Why? It's because when we ask the question, who is Jesus, we inevitably interpret the question to mean, who is Jesus for me? At the start of every semester, Scott McKnight, Scott McKnight um, a prominent Christian professor, uh, gives his students a test on the first day of his Jesus class. Uh, the test begins with a series of questions about who the, G- who the students think Jesus is and what he's like. And, a, and the test asks questions like, is he, is he moody? Uh, is he the life of the party? Is he kept to himself? And then after the students had, t- had finished taking the first test, they were given another test. The second test was a personality test that was patterned after the first test. And the only difference was that the wording was changed slightly. After giving the test over and over again, the results no longer surprised Scott McKnight, but only confirmed his hypothesis. Every student thought that Jesus was just like them. And the the professor remarked that the the test results suggested that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case that we make Jesus into who we think he is and what he should be like. What McKnight's test revealed is that we tend to project our own identities upon God. Uh, We assign him our, our personalities, our values, our traits, our biases, our hopes, and even our dreams. And so we interpret the question, who is Jesus, to really the question, who is Jesus for me? <clears throat> and you know, the irony of this story is that these were Christian seminary students. Uh, they probably had all the right ideas about Jesus in their heads. But when put to the test, it turns out that the Jesus that they functionally worshipped all along was really the Jesus of their own imaginations, dreams, longings, and desires. What about us? What have you hoped for in Jesus during the pandemic? Uh, what have you hoped for? that Jesus would do for you this season? Um, What have you expected of Jesus now? The sociologist Christian Smith uh, spent most of his time studying uh, the religious lives of teenagers like yourself. And he included that most religious teenagers view Jesus as a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. Uh, We know that our our lives, especially at Lighthouse, right? We we know that our lives exist for him. But functionally, it's really more like the other way around. Jesus exists to help us through our problems and achieve what we desire. Uh, We know that Jesus is God, but maybe for some of us, he's actually more like a cosmic vending machine who exists to enhance our life and make us happy, get into the schools that we want to get into, have the the right friends if we prayed. We know that Jesus is the savior for sinners, but maybe for some of us, he's actually more like a divine therapist where we pray, maybe we fill out a, a PDI for counseling, only when he is needed to solve a problem. Now, this not, might not be the Jesus in our heads, but this is who. But is this who Jesus really and actually is in your life? And what we see in our passage tonight is, is Jesus is the King. He is the King who will not be conformed to our image. G- King Jesus will not conform to our expectations of Him, but rather our expectations of Him must be conformed to King Jesus Himself. And so, that actually brings us to our main point, our key idea tonight. If Jesus is to be king in our lives. We must come to Jesus on his own terms and not ours. And in order to come to Jesus on his own terms, we must know three things. We must know who Jesus thinks he is, who we think he is, who the crowd thinks he is, and who he really actually is. And so the first point is who Jesus thinks he is. Um, Take a look at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, starting in chapter 9, Luke begins to talk about Jesus' continual journey to Jerusalem. 
from chapters 9 to 19, the chapter that we're in now, a bunch of stuff happens between Jesus and the people that he meets, conversations that he has with people. But Jesus' destination in the background has always been to Jerusalem. Why? Because it is in Jerusalem that the Messiah was prophesied to return to his people. It is in Jerusalem that the temple, the religious center of Israel, would be revisited and re-inhabited by God himself. It is in Jerusalem that the Messiah was prophesied to rescue and deliver his people from oppression. In fact, there's a reason why Luke and all the other gospel writers mention Jerusalem and three other geographical locations. Take a look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Now, my Jewish geography is a little rusty. Just kidding. I have no idea where these places actually are. But according to Luke, okay, uh, Bethphage and Bethany are located at the Mount of Olives. Now, who cares? Well, the Mount of Olives is, is located on the eastern side of Old Jerusalem, on the eastern side of the temple. And this is not a coincidence. Um, if you're familiar with Ezekiel, which I'm sure all of us are, shame on you if you aren't, uh, just kidding. No one really is. Uh, Ezekiel prophesies that this is the exact location where the glory of God will return. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ezekiel, which I think is all of us, it is a prophetic book that describes God's judgment of Israel for their idolatry and rebellion. I mean, what else is new in the Old Testament, right? And in an act of climactic judgment upon Israel, God's glory visibly departs from the temple. God leaves his home on earth. But later on in the book, Ezekiel provides hope by saying that God's glory will return. But it's surprising where his presence will return to. I'll save us a flip there, but this is what Ezekiel chapter 43 verses 1 to 5 says. You can write this in your margin in your notes or whatever you, you use to take notes if you even take notes at all. But this is what Ezekiel says, verse 1 of chapter 43. He says, then he, uh, God, Yahweh, led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar canal, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, I mean, notice in those five verses, just how often Ezekiel mentions the gate facing east. He mentions it three times. The purpose of doing this walkthrough uh, from Ezekiel isn't just Bible facts for you guys to be fascinated with. The reason why I bring up Ezekiel is because Jesus entering from the east of Jerusalem, the east of the gates of Jerusalem, arriving from the east side of the temple was a partial fulfillment of this very prophecy. What is Jesus trying to communicate as he rides into Jerusalem from the east? Jesus is the glory of God coming back to his city. Jesus is the presence of God coming back for his people. Therefore, it's not a coincidence that Jesus arrives on the east side of Jerusalem. And it's also not a coincidence that Jesus arrives on the Mount of Olives. That's the reason why Luke takes special care in mentioning those geographical locations. In fact, it is only appropriate that Jesus the Messiah begins his entrance to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Why? Because in Zechariah, another prophecy fulfilled, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, the prophet Zechariah prophesied roughly 400 years prior that the, that the Messiah would stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. If any of you are curious where Jesus will reappear when he returns to earth, it certainly will not be America or Torrance, or Lighthouse Community Church. When Jesus returns, he will set foot again on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, just uh, if you're curious, I guess, it's the reason why the Mount of Olives contains the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, which I guess makes sense because it's Israel, of course. But Jews buried the dead in the Mount of Olives because they anticipated the, the Messiah returning on the Mount of Olives. And this is where Jews believed the resurrection of the dead would first take place. It would take place first in the Mount of Olives, they think. Um, if you're curious about that, you can look it up, Mount of Olives, uh, cemetery graves, and you, you'll just see a bunch of like white tombstones just plastered all over the Mount of Olives. 
But when Jesus ascends into heaven, <clears throat> do you know where his ascension takes place? It's here at the Mount of Olives. Jesus will descend here again at the Mount of Olives, just as he ascended. Now, the question that I'm sure all of you guys are wondering is who cares, right? Like, why do we spend the last five to eight minutes looking at two obscure passages in the Old Testament? <clears throat> it's because Jesus is making deliberate attempts to show us that he is the promised one from the Old Testament. By arriving on the Mount of Olives, by entering Jerusalem from the east, Jesus was deliberately trying to show us who he believes he is, that he is the Messiah. In fact, the, the, the first few verses of this passage is meant to show us that everything that Jesus does is laden with messianic fulfillment. Everything that Jesus does is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Everything that Jesus does as he approaches Jerusalem is meant to be interpreted as his deliberate demonstration that he is the true Messiah from God who has come to rescue his people. The first two verses of our passage here have, are, have Jesus already fulfilling two Old Testament prophecies. And the following verses show how Jesus fulfills a final third. Take a look at verses 20, uh, 29 to 35. <clears throat> When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, who those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. Now, did you notice what was happening here? Everything happens just as Jesus said. The two disciples find a colt tied just as Jesus said. The owners of the colt asked the disciples why they're untying it just as Jesus said. And they let the disciples go with the colt just as Jesus said. Do you get what's happening? Everything happens just as Jesus said it would. Now, what is the point? The point is that Jesus is in complete control of all the events that will tra transpire and happen in Jerusalem. Nothing will take Jesus by surprise, whether it is the abandonment of his disciples later on, the crowd's demands to crucify him later on, or the crucifixion itself later on. Jesus knows exactly what he is riding into, and that makes, that, that makes everything that he does as deliberate and intentional. So if everything as, is as deliberate as Jesus as intended, then why the cult? I mean, none of us really know the ge geography and none of us are familiar with it, which doesn't surprise me at all. Why would you guys? But the geography is actually really, really important. Jesus and the crowd of disciples with him are standing at the summit of the Mount of Olives. But the Mount of Olives is higher than Jerusalem in elevation. And the distance between the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem is only a mile and a half. Some of us can walk a mile in just 30 minutes. And so that means that the distance wasn't very far from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And on top of that, they were also going downhill. So in other words, it wasn't a difficult journey at all. So why, why ride on the colt at all? Now, up to this point, the gospels never report Jesus riding on an animal. And not only does it deviate from Jesus' usual method of travel, which was by foot, it also deviates from the pattern of all Passover pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem. The most devout worshipers walked to Jerusalem. But here we have Jesus riding on a colt. Why? What is the significance? It's because Jesus wasn't any ordinary individual. In riding on a colt, Jesus was fulfilling yet again a final prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. Now, what is the point? We, we just spent the last eight minutes talking about how everything Jesus did was intentional, how he knew everything, how he fulfilled Jewish prophecy. What is the point? Well, all throughout the verses that we've read, Luke gives intentional and explicit details to show us just how aware Jesus was of his own identity. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And the, and the point, if it isn't clear by now, is that Jesus is declaring through his actions that Jesus is the king. 
His actions speak louder than any words might proclaim. Jesus was making theologically charged acts all throughout this passage to show that he is the promised one that Israel was looking for. He is the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecy. The king has returned to his city. And that brings us to two implications of Jesus' self-understanding as king. The first implication is that it means that he must either be, if, if Jesus is king, if Jesus' self-understanding as king, um, if, if he understands himself as king, it, must, it means that he must either be accepted or rejected. If it's true that Jesus is king of the Jews, it also means that he is the king of the nations. In other words, he's the king of the world. And if Jesus really is this king, then he demands all of you, not just some of you. Now, during this season, some of us have treated Jesus just like he's our pet. Uh, we think that he just wants some time to play. So we'll spend five minutes of our day going for a walk with Jesus. I mean, maybe we'll feed him our, our spiritual leftovers under the table. But if Jesus is king, he cannot be a mere accessory or an, a, an optional add-on to our lives whenever we feel like we want him or not. If Jesus is king, then he, can, he cannot merely be a peripheral feature of our lives. If Jesus is king, he cannot merely be someone that we only talk about and think about on Fridays or Sundays. In other words, if Jesus is king, he cannot merely be a means to an end. He cannot be reduced to a set of divine principles for a better relationship. If Jesus is king, he cannot be a stepping stone to some kind of other success of ours. But rather, if Jesus is God, he must be the center and the focus of it all. If Jesus is God, then he has claim on our whole lives, not just parts of it. Now, during the first century, what gave comfort and relief to Christians persecuted by the Roman government was the reminder that Jesus is Lord. But this claim wasn't just a religious claim. It was also a political claim. In saying that Jesus is King or Lord, it was denying that Jesus uh, that, that Caesar was. Saying Jesus is King is saying is equivalent to saying that Jesus has universal claim over every single facet of your life. That is what you, as a Christian, profess to proclaim if you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you actually profess to claim that Jesus is Lord of your life. That's what it means to follow him. And you know, I think many of us claim in word that Jesus is Lord, but indeed our lives proclaim something entirely different. I mean, for the past two months, we've been talking about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is, like I've mentioned for the past couple months now, is the validation that everything about Christianity is true. That everything that we know about Jesus, the Messiah, as the king of the cosmos, as a living Lord, is all true. But despite knowing all of this, I think it's still possible for our lives to declare something different instead. Now, I've used this illustration a couple of years ago for a Sunday sermon, and some of you weren't even there for it. And the rest of you probably forgot or don't even remember. Uh, but there was a weird baptismal ritual um, that the Knights of Templar would temp participate in during the medieval era. And when the church would baptize one of the knights, the knights would allow themselves to be submerged underwater except for their sword. They would hold up their swords up, up out of the water while the rest of them would be immersed. As if to say, Jesus, you can have all of my life except the violence and injustice that I do with this sword. And if this was still the practice today, maybe we would not hold up a sword, but maybe it's something else instead. Maybe it is a relationship, um, our video games, our phones. What would you hold up? I mean, in many ways, we, we ask, we, we, we say to Jesus, Jesus, you can have all of me, but don't you dare touch my friendships. Jesus, you can have all of me except for my free time. Jesus, you can have all of me, but I'm keeping my non-Christian girlfriend. Jesus, you can have all of me, but you can't have my obedience. I mean, do you know what we're saying here when we say that? We're saying that we are Lord, not Jesus. God cannot touch my friends. He can't touch my health. He can't touch my video games. In fact, he can't touch anything at all except for that two-hour window of time that I've allotted for youth group on Friday nights or even less on Sundays. You see, it doesn't really matter what we know about Jesus, his resurrection, who we actually think he is, if the way we, we live still says, I am Lord. But you see, it isn't so much who Jesus is to us, but who is Jesus to Jesus and what will we do with him? To borrow the words of C.S. Lewis, he said, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And he later on says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that he cannot be is moderately important. In other words, if Jesus is king, then he is of infinite importance. And if he is not, then he is of no importance. But the only thing that Jesus cannot be in our lives is moderately important, like semi or half important. We must either accept him completely or reject him completely. Secondly, the second implication, Jesus' self-understanding as king means that he can be trusted. Now, as the king, that, that authority and title alone would be enough to command our obedience. As the ruler of the world, that would be enough to demand our complete allegiance. But God, but Jesus gives us more. There's a, there's a famous uh, dialogue in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, which I'm, I'm sure all of you guys are familiar with, because I've probably mentioned it before, where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy enter Narnia for the first time, and they hear about Aslan. And talking with one of Narnia's residents, Mr. Beaver, they find out that Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Where Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The king who demands all of us isn't safe. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about the claims that Jesus makes upon our lives, he calls us to give up ourselves, to take up our crosses, to follow him, to take, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who antagonize us. What Jesus as the king calls us to do is not easy and it is not safe. In fact, Jesus will often take us through deep valleys of darkness, suffering, sorrow, and grief. But as the king, Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. Everything that Jesus calls us to do is something that Jesus has already done himself. Jesus isn't only the true king, but he's actually the good king. Because if Jesus really is the king, if he really is the fulfillment of centuries and millennia old prophecies of scriptures, then it means that God really does keep his promises. That he is the king who actually can be trusted. It means that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus the king. If you've ever doubted God's promise, doubted whether God would answer the prayers that he promised he would answer, doubted God's care, his provision, his character, his presence. Luke tells us to look to King Jesus. God has kept his word in Jesus. I mean, this is who Jesus thinks he is. He is the king who can be trusted. And the question is, always, the question has always been every single day, what will we do with him? Every morning we wake up, what will we do with this Jesus? What do the crowds do with him? That brings us to our second point, who the crowds think he is, who the crowds think he is. Take a look at verses 36 to 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Luke reveals what the crowds and the Pharisees thought of Jesus by exposing two characteristics of unbelief. The first, characteristic of unbelief was the unbelief of false expectations. Now, none of what Jesus had done was lost on the crowd. To a certain degree, they understood what Jesus was doing, spreading their cloaks down on the road, hyping Jesus up. They understood that superficially, at least, Jesus was the Messiah. And in Luke's account only, Luke tells us that the heartbeat of all this hype and madness was driven by none other than Jesus' own disciples, the very same disciples who asked Jesus to call down thunder on unrepentant cities, the very same disciples who asked Jesus to place them on his left and right of privilege, the very same disciples who would eventually fall asleep when Jesus tells them to pray and to keep watch, the very same disciples who would abandon Jesus as Roman guards. These very same disciples were the ones stirring up the crowds in in hype, in ecstasy, and in praise. But notice what the crowd was shouting. Take a look at verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now there's a palpable excitement about Jesus because they thought that he was going to be the king that they wanted. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with expecting a king. All throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we know that there is going to be a prophesied Messiah, a king who would save his people. And we, we, we just read those passages earlier. But the problem was that the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that after generations and generations of despotism, whether it was by Egypt or Assyria, Babylon or Rome, the Messiah would return to Jerusalem and kick out all of Israel's oppressors and establish a new kingdom. Their narrow understanding of the Messiah was that the Messiah would conquer Rome, not be conquered by Rome. When we have this backdrop in mind, the praise and hype surrounding Jesus takes on a whole different meaning. What the crowd inspired by the disciples wanted wasn't a king who was over their lives, really a king who was just on their side. And the worst is that even Jesus' closest followers The disciples themselves thought Jesus was this kind of king. What they all wanted, the disciples included, was a king of their own political agendas, dreams, and desires. I mean, what about us? What do you expect of Jesus? You see, there's a clear difference between the Messiah that God sent into the world versus the Messiah that we hope God sent into the world. I mean, so many of us want a Jesus without a cross, because without a cross, we can have Jesus without the obedience. We can have Jesus without the responsibilities. We can have Jesus without losing anything else. Now, just to be clear, the Messiah was a biblical promise that God would fulfill. But that promise became warped and twisted to mean a Messiah who would tick all of their individual preferences and boxes. It's like God playing draw phone with Israel. God had a very specific image of the Messiah in mind. And one by one along the way, that image warped into something very different from God's original intention. The Messiah that they had in mind wasn't God's Messiah, but really their Messiah. And it is precisely in the midst of hype that we misunderstand who Jesus is. It is precisely in hype that it obfuscates and obscures who Jesus actually is. Why? It's because of the association. Jesus doesn't want to be associated with hype, with brand, with status, because hype, brand, and status communicate a different message about who Jesus actually is and what he was going to do. Jesus wasn't a street performer who had a bunch of cool tricks up his sleeve. He didn't have a brand to sell. He was not a social media influencer. Following Jesus is not the new cool. This, I mean, this was the reason why Jesus lived in obscurity for most of his life. He deliberately kept his messianic identity a secret so that no one would misinterpret nor misunderstand his mission. Jesus purposefully shied away from the limelight. In other words, what we actually see going on here is that Jesus didn't want fans as well-intentioned as they are, even in this passage. Why? Because if you think about it, I mean, if you're a fan of a sport, you know, you'll know that fans are fickle. They are completely inconsistent, and they constantly bandwagon. I mean, fans are only happy when their teams win. It's the reason why so many Warriors fans drop like flies when they tanked two seasons ago. Fans, if you think about it, are mere spectators. There's no skin in the game for them. What's more important to Jesus isn't fans, but actual followers. If we are to hail Jesus as our king, we must hail him as the one who will save us from our sins, not as the one who will serve to fulfill our own agendas. If we are to hail Jesus as king, we must hail him as the one who will set up his kingdom and not ours. Jesus' identity, in fact, is most clearly seen and revealed not in popularity, not in status, not in hype, not in influence, but in the cross and in the empty tomb. Only in those two places do we see Jesus most clearly. As Christians and like Jesus, we must embrace our identity as exiles. We are sojourners and pilgrims. If you are a Christian, the path that God calls us to walk on is not a path of ease, nor the path of least resistance, where where Christianity is the dominant religion of America. The path that God calls us to walk on is a path that is fashioned in the shape of a cross. And so why should it surprise us that the path of discipleship, the path of following Jesus today is hard in 21st century America? It shouldn't surprise us that it's hard. In fact, while the crowds expect the Messiah to bring peace and rest from their enemies, Jesus' peace is quite different. Rather than making peace with a sword, Jesus makes peace with his blood. 
I mean, it's often remarked that Jesus is humble because he rides on a donkey. But I don't think that's right. The donkey, the donkey doesn't make Jesus humble because Jesus is already humble without the donkey or not. There's a, there's a different reason why Jesus rides on a donkey. A donkey signify the absence of conflict and war because you don't ride into war with a donkey. If you want to win a war, it's definitely not with a donkey. So why the donkey? Why the colt? It's because the colt would come to symbolize how Jesus, as the true king of Israel, would save his people. <clears throat> not through political victory, certainly not by the people that we vote into office, but through his own violent death. You see, what Jesus wanted people to see was the problem behind the problem. That there is something deeper behind political conquest, human injustice, human oppression, and war. What was that? It's sin. It wasn't that God didn't care about Rome occupying Israel. Rome was like the worst. They were for sure a problem. They sacked, terrorized, and oppressed. But to get rid of Roman oppressors is like hacking at a weed. If you hack at the weed without removing the root, it'll grow back. If it wasn't Rome, it was going to be some other nation that would oppress Israel. Rome was a big problem, but it, wasn't, it just wasn't the biggest problem. God deals with the oppression in the Jewish world. He deals with the injustice in our world by going straight to the root first. God deals with human sin first because human sin is the root of all human evil, the root of all human injustice and oppression, the root of all human division. God deals with the problem of evil by punishing it in Jesus. He deals with the injustices of the world that we face today by crushing his son. God deals with the complicity and the evil even within our own hearts by crucifying the Messiah. You see, God does not win by sending armies into bloody battles, but by sending his son to the cross. This is what the crowd would not have expected in their hype and celebration. In fact, they could not, and in fact later would not, wrap their heads around the idea that their Messiah would be an executed carpenter from Galilee, who died for sinners outside the gates of Jerusalem, crucified on a cross, a Roman cross, beside two criminals, and that the Creator God would raise him from the dead, from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. And now that same crucified but resurrected carpenter is king of the universe, calling out a people for himself to faith and obedience, and returning to establish his kingdom on earth. And whoever believes on this Messiah can be saved from their sins, be transformed, and be part of God's new world and kingdom. That, that just wasn't thinkable. That is not the kind of Messiah that the Jews had in mind. In their minds, that's not how the, the Messiah is supposed to do things. He was not supposed to die. Certainly not on a Roman cross. Rome was still around, if, if you think about it, for centuries and continued to, even up until the fourth century, they continued to persecute Christians. But this is who the Messiah was and is. And I think the hardest part of this, of this passage is believing that God's expectations of Jesus the Messiah are better than our expectations of Jesus the Messiah. Again, what are your expectations of Jesus the Messiah? What do you want Jesus to do for you right now? I mean, maybe the Jesus that you hope for will grant you long life and, and happiness. Maybe the Jesus that you hope for will shield you from all kinds of sickness and suffering, protect your family from whatever illness. Maybe the, the Jesus that you hope for will solve all of your problems, relational or not. Maybe the, the Jesus that you hope for will allow all of us to eat indoors, go to class and see our friends with no restrictions. And while all of these are, are good and great things, those things are ultimately not what we need. I mean, what if, if you think about it, what if the Messiah came not through a dissension from the skies, what if the Messiah did not come riding in a chariot of fire, but on a borrowed donkey? What if the Messiah came not with a sword to rescue his people's enemies, but with a cup and a piece of bread that would signify the blood and the body that would be shed and broken for his people? I mean, what if the, the, the Messiah laid down his crown and was strapped to a cross, never actually harming a Roman guard? What if the Messiah would actually die for sinners and experience the wrath of God on their behalf? What if the Messiah came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Would that be enough? And could it be possible that this was better than what the Jews and even this high school group had ever hoped for? 
In fact, if you think about it, do you know what the most prevalent promise is all throughout the scriptures? It's, I will be with you. But what's more striking is the circumstances in which it is often promised and invoked. God's presence is promised, especially in the midst of suffering, uncertainty, difficulty, and fear. I mean, have you noticed how the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't actually remove the presence of suffering? I mean, Rome still continued to occupy and exert its oppressive force even upon the early church. Even today, we still face darkness. Trials have not gone away, obviously. So it's fair to ask, what does Jesus' death and resurrection actually do then? But what we fail to see is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he does not remove our experience of suffering. Rather, he fills it with his presence. And our trust in Jesus will never be cultivated if there is no imminent nor dire need to trust him. And this is what we see in the response and unbelief of the Pharisees, which brings us to the second characteristic of unbelief, the unbelief of missing the point. Take a look at verses 39 to 40. I'm almost done, guys. So stick with me. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The irony of the Pharisees, as we all know or should know by now, is that for how learned they were, they missed the whole point of their studies. The Pharisees, as you guys know, were expert students of scripture. They had memorized the entire Hebrew Bible. They parsed every command and extracted every single principle that they could probably find. And yet their supposed mastery of scripture did not actually result in knowing the prophesied Messiah or recognizing him when he stood right in their faces. In John's gospel, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If anyone should have known who the Messiah was, it really should have been the Pharisees. But even inanimate objects like the rocks knew better than the Pharisees themselves. Now, what is the lesson of the Pharisees? The lesson of the Pharisees is that if we fail to see Jesus in scripture, it means that we're doing something wrong. When the Bible is seen primarily as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage with Jesus and his words. And so rather than seeing scripture as a means for knowing Jesus, we search scriptures just like the Pharisees for applicable principles for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and life. But when we do that, we have become Christian deists, not Christian disciples. We, re- we reduce scripture from God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ to merely a revelation of divine principles for life. And if we have the instruction manual to life, then why bother with the person who wrote it? Because if we have the king's instructions, then why bother with the king himself? When this happens, we reduce trusting in God to a set of principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions. Five characteristics of a godly relationship, three ways for gospel-centered conversations, four steps to gospel-centered friendships, five things to know for gospel-centered counseling. I mean, we've turned something useful and helpful into something ultimate and impossible to read our Bibles or listen to sermons without. And the problem is that discovering and applying these principles does not actually require a relationship with Jesus. Instead, being a Christian simply means that you have swapped a worldly set of life principles and values for a new set taken from scripture itself. This requires no cultivation of wisdom or trust because why need to cultivate wisdom or trust in reading our Bibles when we have a list of things to do in the Christian life and still have a pretty good li- and pretty good and successful life anyway? I mean, The point is that Jesus can be set aside while we remain in control of our lives. He can be praised, thanked, and even worshiped for giving us these wise applications for life. But Jesus' participation is altogether optional. And so it's no surprise that the Pharisees responded the way that they did to Jesus because they missed the whole point of the scriptures. Jesus didn't fit within the categories and principles of their streamlined religion. And when our supposed mastery doesn't re, uh, mastery of scripture doesn't result in actually bringing us closer to Jesus, then we've actually missed the whole point. We've missed Jesus completely. 
who is the whole point of the scriptures. So who is he then? Who is Jesus really? That brings us to our third and final point, who Jesus really is. When faced with the eventual unbelief of the crowds and the obvious unbelief of the Pharisees, this is how Jesus responds. This is this particular passage reveals the very heart of Jesus. Take a look at verses 41 to 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The truest identity of Jesus is most clearly seen not in the hype, excitement, or celebration, but in his tears as he weeps for the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is grieved that they have spurned him and in doing so spurned their salvation. Jesus did not weep weep for his sake, but he wept for their sake. Jesus is grieved that they don't see him for who he truly is. In fact, in all four of the gospels, Luke is the only gospel that mentions this scene right here, this scene of Jesus weeping. In fact, out of all of the recorded times that Jesus cries, which is only twice, this is the second time. That Jesus weeps for the city becomes even more surprising when we encounter the, the inhabitants of this city. This city will be the city that Jesus came to save, whose inhabitants just five days later will cry out, crucify him. In other words, Jesus weeps not only for his enemies, but he weeps for his beloved enemies. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you wept at a person's unbelief? I mean, never mind unbelief. When was the last time you wept for someone who talked behind your back or someone who ghosted you? And not for your sake, but for theirs. What we see in Jesus weeping for the city, for all of its inhabitants, is that Jesus weeps for these specific kinds of individuals. He he weeps for the self-righteous hypocrite. He certainly weeps for the lost, but he weeps for for the lost who don't even know that they're lost. He weeps for the blind guides. These people are the least likely people, least likely people that we would weep for. I mean, these are the kinds of people that we roll our eyes at. It's the religious zealots. I mean, do we have a category? Do we have categories in our minds? A, a picture of Jesus weeping for his enemies, for, for hypocrites. The author Anne Lamott writes that you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. The test of idolatry is whether what we is whether we believe God loves all the same people we love and hates all the same people we hate. I mean, this picture of Jesus is shocking because he, because he weeps for the people that we that would most likely be the last people on earth we would ever weep for. What is your response to your enemies? I mean, are we are we sorrowful? I mean, it's it's completely possible that we're angry, that we'll probably talk behind their backs. Uh, probably ghost them. But what's less likely is the fact that we're grieved by them. And do we sorrow at another person's sin? Does it break our hearts that people live in darkness? Does it, or does it harden our hearts toward them? Does it make us feel justified in our anger toward others? Does it make us say, I knew that they would just be like this? The animosity and antagonists in our lives ought to arouse our compassion, not diminish it. Jesus' response to unbelief, to evil, to reject, uh, to, to, rejection, to rejection, not only changes the way that we look at the unbelief of others, but it should also change the way that we should look at our own unbelief. I mean, Jesus pleads with Israel. He pleads with us. Jesus' response to unbelief changes our apathy toward unbelief. And as the, rightful, as the king of his rightful people, he weeps at their unbelief, but, he, but also their refusal to listen. And take a look at verses 30, 43 to 44. For the, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade to, around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. Jesus links the destruction of Jerusalem with their failure to know the time of Jesus' visitation. Jesus has visited his people in peace the cross. Their refusal to accept Jesus is directly tied to their judgment by Rome. 
And this actually did happen. Jesus prophesied something that would happen later on, 40 years later. Because 40 years later, Rome will sack Jerusalem. They will raise it to the ground. They will destroy Jerusalem. They will pillage and they will rape its women. The Roman general Titus would look at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, but unlike Jesus who weeps at the city, he will launch catapults, sending boulders into the city. And Jesus weeps at their destruction, wishing that they had known the things that would make for peace. And the reason why it was hidden from their eyes is because they would not see. In fact, they were already convinced of their own conclusions. Their hearts couldn't be changed because they didn't want to be changed. And what Luke is trying to draw our attention to is that we know the things that make for peace. I mean, could it be possible for this high school group right here to have an abundance of resources, to have a wealth of knowledge, to have a profound theological depth that even the Jews weren't privy to, to attend all these different things, to listen to all these different things, to only to have missed the point. We know who Jesus is. We know he is the Messiah. And the question is, Will we make the same mistake as the city of Jerusalem? Will we spurn our salvation and look for another? Or will we come to Jesus on his own terms? Or will we come to Jesus on ours? We have a Messiah who weeps for us. This might not be the Messiah that you want, but this is precisely precisely the Messiah that we need. May God grant us the eyes to see the things that make for peace during this holy week. Let's pray together. Father, even as we think about the celebration of Good Friday and Easter, it is easy to to find ourselves just as the crowds do, uh, with excitement, saying just as they do, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, but to have completely missed the whole point of His coming. Father, I pray that there would be deep reflection. This week, as we reflect on Holy Week, pray that you would help us to see Jesus not only as the true king, because that's easy. It's easy to see him as he is in scripture, on paper. We, we can recite two ways to live. We can, we can do all the simple Christian things that good Christians do, but it is the harder task of reflecting and, whether, and, and really seeing whether or not we have actually followed King Jesus or we've really followed a, a Jesus of our own making. And so Father, help us now. Uh, we pray that even in small groups that you would help us to look at Jesus aright, that you would help us to have good discussions Help us to follow him uh, with all that we are and for who, for all that he is. Um, we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.